Okay, well, welcome to episode, I guess this would be four of Dano Says So. Um, Sir. Um, I suppose, I suppose uh, the fact that I've known today's guest for about 35 years has very little to do with what inspired me to have him on this series. His work very recently and during a lot of the current political upheaval in this country has been speaking to me as loud as anything he's ever done. It's one of those situations where if a picture's worth a thousand, thousand words, you let Martin out a couple a couple words to a picture and its power is immeasurable. So Martin Sprouts, thank you for doing this. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it, man. It's good to see you. Really good you to see you. Appreciate that. Um, so one of the things that I was thinking... Years, right? Pardon? 35 years, 35 years, right? So Billy and I were at Maximum in in 85. I don't know if you remember that trip. We were there for three or four days. And it was it was during... It was... Uh, Verbal Assault was there on the Learn, Learn Tour. Um, they played a DRI gig in, in downtown San Francisco. It was all a, a very new world to me. That's the first time I know we hung out. Now, whether when we were both, you know, not anywhere near the Bay Area and fanzine nerds, I don't remember whether we were in communication. I know I had leading edge issues, you know. Oh, we met before I moved to San Francisco. Probably, but, you know, Alzheimer's, head wounds, bad teeth. Yeah, because I remember the first time I met Billy, and that was way before I moved. Strangely enough, when we were kids, Billy was a lot more outgoing than I was. A lot more so. And But I met you through Billy, but yeah. yeah you absolutely did. So your timeline yeah. is probably more accurate than I am. You're not a drinker, you know. 35, <laughs> 36 years, something like there that. There we right? go. Well, okay, let's, okay, anyways. That's fine. So, you know, somebody was telling me they prefer the old stories to the theory, and I said, Tough, you're going to get a lot of theory. Um, so I was thinking about something when I was looking at a lot of the recent three-court politics stuff, and it was that, you know, it's in my wheelhouse. It appeals to me on a very visceral level. It gives visual voice to a lot of things that I think, but it made me think for the purposes of this interview, do you feel like that kind of work just preaches to the choir, or do you think visuals have the ability to go beyond what maybe just words and editorial does? No, preaching to the choir, I've never subscribed to that theory at all. I mean, that's just defeatist attitude. There's nothing yeah. even, doesn't even cross my mind. I don't give a fuck about that shit. You know, never. You know, I mean, the main thing I do, the reason why I've done things, you know, since day one of being involved in the punk scene is to do them for myself and work with other people and see what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never been to, I've never been one to like convert people or, you know, get people to do one thing or another, you know, or even really see things a certain way. It's just kind of like, here's my take on it and see what happens. Yeah, but by the same token, anytime I think if you point out the sheer toxicity of a situation, whether naively or subconsciously or whatever, that does involve the intention or the hope of changing that situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's really weird because my brain doesn't go that way. And I'm, I'm not denying what you're saying at all, at all, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I'm not, you know, sitting there. I just not, that's not the reason why I'm making the graphics or why I'm doing this stuff is to get people to see it this way. It's mainly to say it. And maybe I think people figure it out on their own. They see the graphic and they, it confirms what they're feeling or pisses them off or, you know, or mm -hmm. it makes them laugh or they feel comfort and solidarity, which I think mm -hmm. is a huge part of the graphics. It's not only just a, like you make a fuck the police graphics, not just to piss off the police, it's to make comfort for people that have that same feeling. 
and add, you know add comfort in that and solidarity that, is, that, that has that strikes me as having very real value because it keeps them in the fight very um, important very important break you know breaks silence breaks distance you know and in some ways in a lot of ways just you know because i come from early 80s punk rock like you mm -hmm. there's also a lot of humor in it too you know, like, sometimes, sometimes a fuck the police graphic can make you laugh and it's important for all of us to make make it laugh it's not trying to make it not a serious subject at all or you know make light of it but it, you know if you see big bird a, you know poster of big bird saying fuck the police mm -hmm. it still strikes me as funny but it's still a very serious graphic right. you know i'm not taking anything away from that message even just using those three simple words uh, to my perception, because most of our communication is online, which means it's a sentence long, um, it seemed to me like a few times that you see your graphics or where they've ended up or the way that they've reached people has really caught you off guard. I'm thinking of some building projections I've seen and things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, there's, um, there's a group in the Bay Area called Resistance SF that does projections. And the main dude that does that, man, he is... This sounds so cliche, but that dude is a soldier. He is out there every night projecting in San Francisco, in Oakland. On He's doing the Fremont neighbor uh, mayor's garage right now, doing local <laughs> activism. The dude is dedicated. And he found me through Instagram, and he has projected um, a lot of my graphics on walls in downtown Oakland and San Francisco, the federal building. It's amazing. During yeah. Dark Floyd, I mean, there was, you were on walls downtown, weren't you? It's, it's weird referring to George Floyd, George Floyd like an era, but what I'm saying is during the early weeks of the, of the really heavy BLM, BLM stuff this year, you were up there on the walls in life, yeah? Yeah, yeah, and that's all, that's the same dude. In downtown Oakland, he did a huge projection, this one graphic that was just text, and this other um, local dude that works at a um, school took an amazing photo of it. It was on Instagram. Um, Make sure you send me that one. Yeah, it's a beautiful photo, and it just says, you know, we don't negotiate with racists, Oakland, California. Right. You know, I've done different versions of that, and that one is one of the huge ones that got projected on a wall downtown in Oakland, right next to, like, where all the shit was going down. You know? Stuff is incredibly clean and incredibly simple, and in that tends to be its, well, in that tends to be its impact. Uh, do you find it, do you ever find that you put too many brush strokes on a piece? That you, that you water it down unintentionally, just being a perfectionist, or just that damn good? <laughs> Dude, the struggle, man. I mean, you know, so for the clean graphic, I mean, that's always been my kind of take on punk rock graphics. As much as I like ripped and torn and really, you know, as long as it's real and not fake, but mm -hmm. like ripped and torn and thrown together graphics, I love that look, right? It's beautiful, you know, like heavy mm -hmm. collage. You know, I'm talking about like older stuff, even early 80s hardcore stuff, but I've always... From my own thing, I've always been it, think it's pretty interesting to do super crisp and clean graphics, but still have a super hard message. No, you know, your, 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 your stuff has always been pretty super stridently outside the punk rock wheelhouse, probably not in your opinion. But I mean, early yeah, not on. In opinion, not in my opinion at all. Not in my opinion at all, you know? But it's just like adding to, to, adding to the definition of punk rock graphics, I think, you know? Well, to me, it made sense in terms of how it sat with the intention of this movement or genre or subgenre or whatever it was in terms of wanting to communicate but it was definitely out of step which i guess is also a central tenet of what we were supposedly doing so yeah for me a hundred percent you know 
It's also well, it's also just a subversive thing of taking really clean, almost like corporate minimalism look or Swiss minimalism, you know, whatever right. you want to say, and applying it to this punk rock message that has, you know, only gotten harder from me with time, you know, and just looking at that impact, you know, and it just, for some reason it works. And just the language for me just keeps working like that. And also I just think the more you take out the better, you know, like, like I can't do words very well. You know, I'm not a word guy like you or even like John Yates is really good with incorporating words. I'm the guy that takes words out of his graphics. Like if I can get it to two words or three mm -hmm. words, right. solid. You know, and if one of those words is fuck, then it's a win. Well, you are, and you have a comfort with doing that that I just don't have. And by the way, just so you know, full disclosure here, the idea of me sitting here talking about myself like I'm a graphics guy while we discuss you and John, is not, yeah. well, it's, no, it's the, height of, it's the height of arrogance. So thank you for not calling me on it. No, I mean, you, you have a graphic eye. You always have. You know, I think look and logos and, you know, image for the lack of, you know, of your bands and, you know, look and feel of it has always been a thing you know i've always known that about you but um but the um uh what was the question what was it oh, we were just talking about the about about having an appetite for and a comfort with going minimal oh yeah yeah i do and you kind of have to have that because sometimes you're leaving it up to the viewer to kind of pick up on it there's some subtleties there like i'm not afraid of the subtleties i'm not afraid of people having to kind of do a little bit of work where not everything is spelled out. It's not vague for the purpose of being vague, but there's also like faith that people will figure it out. And when they figure it out, it's there. And it's not a puzzle. It's just like, you can take, you know, you, not everything needs to, for me, not everything needs to be explained. Or, right. if you can get, or if you can get the message across with as few words as possible, it's even more successful for me, for the type of image I'm going for, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, sometimes, Sometimes you can need some guts to do it. You know, minimalism, it's not easy. You have the courage to do so. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge it. It's a, like I said, there's never too many brush strokes on your stuff. Okay. And we have discussed sometimes it backfires. Now. Sometimes it backfires, but it's okay. Fair enough. You know. We've discussed the now and we've discussed the arrival and the recent inspiration and in having you on here. Now let's get okay. into the then because it's, it's a trippy path. And in the case of musicians who I'm interviewing, you can pretty much Google them and you can spot where they were everywhere along the line. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Even with you and I, even with you and I having known each other all these years, you know, the only thing I know is San Francisco, is San Francisco after San Diego. Not really what inspired the moves, what occurred in the moves. Um, I don't know if it's a universal interest, but you know living in the Bay Area is a peculiar bird and a, unique, a uniquely political animal in a lot of ways. I also kind of yeah. want to hear about how it's changed over the last three years. You know? Yeah. So take, so take me to a young Martin in the leading edge. What was inspiring you to do it? What was the methodology? And what drove you to it? <laughs> yeah, so we, um, me and my friend Pat Weekland and Jason Traeger started leading edge in San Diego in, God, I know, 83 i think it was we started the idea in 82 we kind of came out the first issue in 83 and the idea you know we were just involved in the punk and hardcore scene in southern california we were all teenagers and san diego in the early 80s was pretty rough i mean it was like a lot of fights a lot of drugs had a kind of an older feel to it and we were kind of like new young hardcore kids you know and it was, you know there was some of us but wasn't a lot of us in san diego and then we just said 
we didn't do drugs, we didn't drink, we skateboarded, we liked hardcore, we didn't really like the old junky punk as much. We liked the music, but we didn't like that scene at all. You know, like, even though we're friends with everybody, we weren't there, you know, causing, you know, we weren't against those people. It was all, you know, back then punk was just one thing. But right, definitely. It really was, and that's super important, you know, like, but we just weren't hanging out with those people. We were friends with them, but that wasn't our thing. So we decided to do this fanzine, and it just was purely organic mm-hmm. and leading edge, and it just kind of trying to cover, without even putting much thought into it, what, you know, was happening in the early 80s hardcore scene, where it was, you know, sounds a little cliche now, but, you know, like the positive aspects of things, you know, like, we're well, going to break up, break up the you know? Leading edge as much as as much as people like say Pat Longry, you know, and some of the kids up here in Orange County or Pat Dubar, some of those people. Yeah. Leading edge was just played just as big a role in driving me towards exploring things like Seven Seconds and, you know, increasing my understanding of the minor threat world. I was I was one of the early Orange County kids who let go last of his leather jacket, his long black yeah. hair. You know, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. At the same time, like, we love punk rock, you know, we were still punk rock hardcore kids, you know, it was just such a crossover there, you know, I mean, it kind of, you know, separated a little bit more, as you know, in the, like, 83, 84, 85, but, um, but, you know, we, we were doing that stuff, but it was still 100% punk rock, but we still, like, had, you know, hardcore anti-racist stuff in there, hardcore anti-cop stuff, growing up in yes. Southern California, you just could not be friends with cops, you know, you were punk rock, you know, it's just like, that's where we got our education, you know, and that's, so we did that for five, we did five issues, and it was just, we had no idea what the fuck we were doing, first issue was just photocopied out of Pat's, when we went to some um, copy shops, and we used Pat's mom's office copier, just crazy shit like that, but, you know, we started becoming pen pals with people, which you did back then, and it just took off, and then, you know, the production of everything went up a thousand notches by the second issue. We were printing it. You know, yeah. I actually printed the second issue in my high school graphic yeah. arts class. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a, that doesn't happen anymore. We printed a punk rock fanzine with swear words, anti-cop articles, you know, like- it Sabotage was, in the American school place. <laughs> dude, it was. Mr. Bentley, he was a graphic arts teacher at Mira Mesa High. Yeah. Amazing, amazing yeah. dude, you know, and we did that. And you then pick, in, up a lot of your, pick up a lot of your chops there, or your early chops? I, no, I just learned how to do technical stuff like printing, you right, know, okay. offset printing, you know, but graphics, graphic arts and all that stuff, that's all self-taught. N- never. I didn't go to college. Barely graduated high school, you know? That, I mean, that, gives, that gives a 52-year-old Dan and his laptop hope. It's just like, you know, you just figure things out on your own. I mean, I've always been that guy, you know, and it's just like... It's also not afraid to look at things differently. You know, like I always like doing graphics a little bit different. Like even the clean aesthetic that you were talking about, you yeah. can see that in the early leading edges, mm-hmm. you know? And also a huge part of it was Jason's artwork in there. Having Jason, Jason Trigger is an incredible artist. I, I have a Jason Trigger tattoo, which no, I will not show for the camera. But oh, I have <laughs> one of his little, <laughs> his little hardcore one guys. Little hoodie cartoon characters on my, on my left arm for 32 years. Yeah. I've never seen that, Dan. Is it yeah, not good? It has a weird mole in it. It looks like a nipple. On that note, what drove you to the Bay Area? Um, uh, offer to join Maximum Rock and Roll. Right. 
So the story is, and it's, you know, I'll make it quick, is that, you know, we used to come up here and visit Maximum Rock and Roll to kind of, you know, see the Bay Area scene. This is before, this is like 84, we started coming up here. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, one time when I was up here visiting, me and Jason came up here and Bessie and Joan from Paranoia Fanzine, from Reno, from the Rex, were yeah. in, um, staying at the Maximum House too. And by the end of the visit, Tim sat us all down and had this proposal where he wanted to start looking for a building to open a punk club. And he wanted people to take over, you know, not, you know, Maxim was a group of people doing things, but kind of mm -hmm. doing the day-to-day -day kind of main organizer thing, take over that role and work with the daily shit worker people to make the magazine happen. Mm -hmm. So he presented it. And the, the way it kind of originally fell into place is that me, Jason, and Bessie Oakley would move here and run the magazine with all the contributors and shit workers. And Tim would start on this new thing of trying to find a building to open a punk club. That was the very fucking beginning of Gilman Street right there. Clearly. Yeah. So then after a couple months, Jason, Bessie decided not to do it. Jason decided not to do it for various reasons. So I moved up here in 85, like summer of 85. And when Billy and I came up, we just must have just been a few months behind your, your, your move. Yeah, because you yeah. came to the Clipper Street house, right? Yeah. We, we came, we came, yeah, we came to the street on, with the house on Clipper. We also came on a weekend. We came up there to meet Bessie and Mike Truchon. So when you started talking about Bessie a few minutes ago, I was like, man, that was a small world that moved fast. So true. So true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, because everybody was coming. I mean, everybody stayed at the Maxim House every day, right? I had to ask Ian McKay to move his car. <laughs> one, of, one of my great baptismal moments in punk rock. Yeah, and it stayed at that house a lot. Um, but uh, so then I just came up there and I just helped, you know, I just joined the Max and Arconwell staff and kind of came in and helped with the day-to-day -day stuff. And then, you know, people started looking for Gilman and that thing took off that way. But that was the original thing that I, you know, why I came up here. And so I stopped Leading Edge when I moved mm -hmm. up here. So Leading Edge only had five issues. One of the things I remember about Max and Rock and Roll and you know, we've never really talked about how you how you look back on it and the role it played in your life, which had to be huge simply by virtue of your duration there and your influence. One of the things that used to trip me out was those massive staff meetings in the basement. Because the if you look... They went the year ones? They went the year ones? Yeah. yeah. But if you would look back, the collection of personalities and talent in that room, you know, mm -hmm. and the combination of ego and intellect that would be involved in those debates is something I would kill to have video, video of that. It's, yeah, it's actually really true. I mean, the maximum staff, even people that just wrote like three zine reviews a month or one record, man, they were just mm -hmm. a huge part of that magazine. That was a really important part. That's one of the millions of misconceptions people have at Maximum that, you know, whether they were, they might not have been there at the time or they, you know, never really understood what it was. It wasn't a Tim Yo thing. There was a lot of people involved there and a lot of people had just as strong opinions and influence as Tim Yo on that magazine. I almost think that one of the things, and not, not, not to speak ill of the dead, and I guess it's not really speaking ill, it's just unfortunate that he's not present to be, to be, to be asked about these things. But I feel like one of the things that undid it for me and that led to my becoming less involved, even though I was living up there, was yeah. that he seemed to start to, at least to my perception, started to sort of unilaterally control a lot of policy in terms of what, kind of, what type of music would be covered. There started to be this real... This real uh, lean towards the faux garage, purple onion scene, you know, and it just didn't have anything to do with what I was doing. And I didn't feel like it was truly the will of the group, you know? I don't think that's true. 
Okay. Well, that was my, it was to my perception. No, no I, I feel that. I mean, I think at the time, I think the influence of the magazine is, was guided by the people that worked on the magazine. That garage scene that you were talking about was a huge part of the San Francisco scene at that time, right? That purple onion thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't remember what years that was, you know, like mid nineties, something like that. Uh, mid, maybe, maybe 93. Yeah. And a lot of those people worked on Maxim at the time. So a lot of that mm -hmm. music had to be covered, you know, but it was never an, like, I don't know what kind of music you were doing or into at the time, but it was never had an anti-hardcore thing. I mean, all of the last time. I very, very rarely listen to what I'm making. Did you get a shitty review? Is this what this is about? One of your records got no, a shitty review? No, I remember certain records <laughs> stopped getting reviewed. Or maybe that's a false memory, and maybe I've bought into a, to an outside line on that. But. So there's, you know, there is things, you know, like the definition of punk and what got covered in Maximum is always up for debate and was always up for debate. What got covered, what didn't, since day one of Maximum, you know, and probably still is to the, you know, to the extent of how they're doing it now. It always will be, and not everybody's gonna agree with it. A lot of people are gonna be left out. Some people hold a grudge forever. That was just part of it, you know, doing a music magazine like that, you know? Because everyone has their own definition of punk, especially in punk, and they're very vocal about it, you know? So, but Tim didn't guide the music direction of the magazine people think he did but there's you know there were hardcore kids reviewing hardcore records when they were re reviewing all that garage stuff too and so and now, I sit, very now I sit here un unavail un unable to apologize to the dead this is just no good <laughs> yeah tim yeah tim scattered a c so i think you're safe man you're fair enough no but you're not alone in that feeling you know not alone in that feeling but it you know it's it wasn't it wasn't that way. Okay, well, there's been a lot of post-maximum rock and roll Martin Sprouse, but it also happens to be post-Bay Area Dan. In other words, my, you know, during the years yeah. that we really sort of lost track of each other. Why don't you tell me about, you know, 90s, 2000, 2010s. I moved in 98. Really? And you were up here for how long? I was up here for just about six years. God, really? Yeah. I moved you up... Barely... I, I moved up after my mother died. I didn't really consciously grasp that, what I was doing. I did it under the guise of being closer to Suzanne, but even I am not that, you know, oh. girlfriend obsessed to do that. I realize now it was, you know, doing a geographic from a traumatic event. I do remember seeing you at a Purple Onion show. Strange. <laughs> the Makers, remember that? I saw with, you at a Makers show. And I think you were, you were so surprised to see me there as I was to see you there. Young Frankenstein. No, not young, Frank. I'm sorry. What am I saying? Um, if you think I knew who any of the bands were, you're on crack. Matt James and I were on like an espionage mission at that point. It was not, you remember? Uh, do you remember the show I'm talking about? I remember the exact show you were talking about. It's the only time yeah. I went. Yeah. God, that's so crazy. That might have been one of the few times that I went. And um, yeah, I saw you there. So we were both at a Purple Onion show. The makers were good. But, that yeah. stain just won't wash off. <laughs> <laughs> And now everybody knows, Dan. Everybody knows. Oh, well. <laughs> no shame. Hey, no listen, shame. you're talking to King Edgebreaker here. My own heritage has been shot on by yours truly to an ir irreparable extent. And I wouldn't change it, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Nah, yeah. nah. Um, so, what was your question? What post, post maximum rock and roll, Martin in the Bay Area, Oakland, etc. I mean, you know, I know you design. I know you design furniture. I'm imagining that's what pays the bills. Yeah. Yeah. But. But you know, you're you're in for you're you know whatever you see is relevant to this. You know what's gone on since since the nineties. Um, 
since the 90s. <laughs> well, we're basically looking at since the turn of the century, which is a lovely phrase. It doesn't help me feel young. Yeah, I mean, I think I was really doing my work a lot, you know, trying to stay alive and run my own business. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. then I started, you know, doing, making more graphics. This was, you know, I was just making for Facebook a long time ago. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Um, and then just to kind of more of them, they were more funny than anything. And then doing those and they just became more and more focused on, I said, oh, this is what I'm going to do now. This reminds me of like doing fanzines back in the early 80s, right. you know, except, except everyone sees them instantly in their full color, which was pretty amazing to me. The instant, <laughs> the instant gratification that comes with the digital age, you know, that I embrace. But oh, yeah, I love people. I love rubbing the, the level of successful networking we were able to do pre-cellular. You know, I know, right? Yeah. Right. But, but the, uh, the ability to do a graphic and see it online an hour later, oh man, it's heaven. Yeah, I mean, you know, like it's just how it is now. But, you know, back then it was like you do something and people wouldn't see it for three months and it would be black and white and it'd be kind of printed, kind of shitty. And you're like, fuck, you know? But then again, you were in full control of things. Now, like I'm doing all my graphics on Instagram. Instagram is not. <laughs> not DIY there, you know, like, but it's the, it's the format that I use to get the message out there. That's the compromise I make much like, you know, using distributors and stuff back then, you know, to get the message out there, you know, and having to sell things. I don't have to sell anything. Everyone sees it for free now. What was the barrier like during Occupy? It was good. It was, you know, there was hope. It has, you know, I mean, Oakland always has a super, Oakland always, I mean, I'm very partial. You know what it's like. Oakland always has a good vibe. Yeah, even the, rest, the rest of the world doesn't. I mean, I, if, I could, if I could have sold my soul to be anywhere in the country during, during Occupy, I'd have been in Oscar Grant Plaza. Right? So you know what right. I'm talking about. Yeah, but Oakland, that's kind of that's why I asked. Yeah, Oakland has a solid vibe. And just the community and the activism and the history. And just mm. also the rawness and just new ideas, new people. And also just... There's not a lot of bullshit in Oakland. It is, you know, it's a hard city. There's not mm -hmm. a lot of money here. There never will be. At least, well, gentrification's coming, but or it's here in many ways, but it's not. Oakland's big. Oakland's mm -hmm. huge. But just that level of creativity and the level of, you know, soul is just so real. You know, and the protests had a really amazing vibe. And there was really good hope. And, you know, Oakland crosses over, you know, like the port of Oakland becomes involved in politics and strikes right away, you know, which I is remember the footage from the general strike during, I remember the footage from the general strike during Occupy in Oakland is the, the footage from the port as being some of the most inspiring footage I saw in the entire country. Port of Oakland does not fuck around, man. No. <laughs> Longshoremen, longshoremen just, and that union is strong and they do not take shit and they fucking just put everything on the line and they are part of Oakland. That is Oakland history and that's a really right. amazing thing and that crosses over during Occupy, it crossed over during, you know, the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd demonstrations, you know, mm -hmm. where they shut all the ports down on the West Coast, you know, the whole union did, you know. And it was, you know, it wasn't only just to say Black Lives Matter, it's just to say they're against, you know, systemic racism, they're extent, you know, against racist cops. They didn't, you know, it's not subtle. They go for it. You know, they're, they're on, they're there 100%, you know, and that's a huge part of the Oakland vibe. It's, it's nice always tripping out. It's the landing point for a lot of politically minded and creatively minded people's sort of exodus from the shelter of their original hometown, a lot like a place like Olympia is. 
But mm. Oakland, you know, Oakland makes so much sense to me. And it always catches me off guard that the world really doesn't actually know. It, I mean, I'm guilty if you look over my shoulders, but, you know, you'd say Oakland and the world will always think Raiders, you know. And I'm, I'm dying. And most you know, the Raiders fans don't live in Oakland. <laughs> you know? Hey, here's one who did briefly. <laughs> I'm knocking you. I'm just saying there's so many, you know, people that live elsewhere, you know, and I live like five minutes from the Oakland stadium or that used to be their stadium. Raider, but, um, fan, Raider fans suffer from the belief that they back the only team in all of professional sports that is actually a counterculture unto itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's true. And there's but, no yeah. way I could ignore that. That and the fact that I had a weird happenstance where I just met a bunch of them when I was a small town. Kept happening. Kept running into giant men who turned out to be Oakland Raiders, and it stuck with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it sounds to me like your talents and your passions land you exactly where you should be. So, congratulations for that. You do incredible work in an incredible town. Can you imagine being anywhere else? Right now, you know, in, other than Oakland, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Nah, I've moved. Okay. You know, I mean, I live, you know, I live in East Oakland and I ended up here, me and my girlfriend broke up. I ended up out here and, you know, I've been here 10 years. I haven't really, I've, I've lived in the Bay Area since 85. I haven't lived in Oakland except for mm -hmm. uh, 10, 10 of those years. You know, a big part, you know, a big part of that life was in San Francisco, but nah, Oakland just feels so good. You know, it's really nice. And I'm surrounded by good people, you know. I've got to tell you, I don't mind. I don't mind ending this interview on you singing the beauties of Oakland, but I don't want to leave any stones unturned. If there's anything you wanted to talk about, is that it? That was fast, Dan. We hauled ass, and I'd like to meet my mark for once. But like I say, the performance is <laughs> yours, sir. No, I mean, you, it's it's your show. You tell me what you want, you know. But no, um, I'm glad we both have a love for Oakland. Oakland's a very important city. Always has been, and always will be. You know, for creative art, politics and changing the world right absolutely it's happening it's happening here man there's oakland just there's no bullshit here and when bullshit does try to come to oakland it gets confronted it really does that's a beautiful thing way to remind me i live in reagan country fuck off and it was great talking to you <laughs> thank you so much martin i'm gonna kill the record part all right thanks dan i appreciate this a lot man good luck with this thing Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown up things like. Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, 
dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe Grind podcast. <laughs>